You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Ray Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, kids, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, and deep-sea canyons and maritime landscapes and artifacts. I've been off the air for a while, and I'm so excited to dive back into ocean interviews to share with you listeners And I'm always open for suggestions for shows and interviews. So just a little promo at the beginning of the show. Please let me know what you want to hear about. You can email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. It's a fresh year, and I'm just thinking about what we'll be discussing on Ocean Currents. But today, I'm delighted to welcome an old friend and colleague to the KWMR studio, Dr. Sarah Allen. Sarah recently retired from the National Park Service, but continues to serve as a leading expert on marine ecology, marine mammals, marine protected areas, and her local specialty of pinnipeds. And it's January, and that means it's elephant seal season here in the Point Reyes National Seashore. And we're going to talk elephant seals a little bit and a lot of other things, too. So welcome, Sarah, to Ocean Currents. Hello, Jenny, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. It's great to see you in the studio, and I haven't seen you in a while, so I think we're going to have a nice chat talking about all things ocean. Last year, about a year ago, about this time, elephant seals expanded their range a little bit in the park. And while the government was shut down and few government employees were around, they moved right on in to Drake's Beach. So a couple have showed up again this year, and I'm wondering if we could just talk a little bit about that. What led to this expansion? Well, the elephant seal colony actually started in 1980 as an expansion from the Farallon Islands and from Ananuevo because this is an amazing example of recovery of a species that was hunted intensively. And they are expanding from their site at Point Reyes over the past 30-plus years from the headlands, which is where they initially got established, and they spilled over onto Drake's Beach near Chimney Rock, and now they've been expanding all along the beach. And we've been fending them off from Drake's Beach parking lot for a number of years because we saw this expansion occurring, and we have our methods for scaring them off with a tarp, which they seem to be frightened of. Not car horns or pots and pans banging, but this blue tarp makes them scatter into the ocean. So we've been working hard to deter the males and females from getting established. But during the government shutdown, we couldn't do that. And they promptly moved in associated with big storm waves. So that's what is kind of a pinch for them is when there's a big storm wave, it pushes the animals around. And right now is when the females are 
are pouring into the beaches from their long voyages offshore in the deep ocean. They're pouring in to give birth. And this is when it starts taking off. So this week there were 50 female or something like 50 females right now. And two weeks ago, there was one. So they're starting to take off pretty quickly. And as they pour in, they poured into Drake's Beach. No, was, no one was chasing them off. They took <laughs> over the parking lot, the islands. They went up the ramp to the visitor center. They had a good time. <laughs> like, it's our time. It's our time to be here. Yes. So I, some people might wonder, why would you chase them off the beach if they're there? Why, why do we chase them off the beach? Well, we feel that we... When I was working for the Park Service, and remember, I'm retired now, so I don't speak for the Park Service. But at the time, we felt that it was a major safety issue, that they have a big mouth and they bite. And uh, people are not always intelligent about how they approach a large wild animal. You can get close to elephant seals, which is really unusual for a large wild animal. Think bison in Yellowstone. People can get amazingly close, but they put their lives at risk. And that's what we are worried about is people getting bit and people perhaps harming elephant seals because they don't understand what their actions can do. So we wanted to keep them separate, and the Marine Mammal Commission said that we could scare them off of this public beach, quote-unquote public beach, because we have a visitor center there and a parking lot and a concentration of the public. So we made that effort, but we failed. (laughs) (laughs) And once you have a female with a pup, you're not going to move an animal around. It's not possible. It's dangerous, and you run the risk of having the pup abandoned by the female. So once a female comes in and gives birth, you can't do anything. Yeah, I can. I mean, speaking from the human perspective, if I was uh, pregnant and getting ready to deliver, I would not want to be shushed off anywhere. No. <laughs> well, but you wouldn't want to be on a beach where there are a bunch of people either. That's so right. there Stressful. is a kind of an inherent um, intolerance to being around people. So a pregnant female is going to make camp come in and see a lot of people and say, well, I think I'll go down to the beach a uh, hundred yards south where there aren't any people and I can quietly give birth and nurse my pup. And so that's the hope with this uh, deterrence is to try to get them back to the places where it's quieter, safer for them, safer for everybody. So how are they doing this year? This year we're (laughs) being pretty successful, (laughs) but not with the males. And it's the females that we want to keep out. Um, We try and keep the males out, but they're going to keep pouring in. So, But with the females, we are being so far effective. I think there there have been a couple that have come in, but they've left um, and gone back to these other areas where there's uh, concentration. Mm-hmm. We had some big waves a couple of weeks ago, and even last week you probably read about that. Yeah. And those waves car- carved out a huge amount of sand. So now the waves come right up to the bluff at high tides. Mm. So there are places that they used to use last year that they can't use this year. Last year there were 300 pups that were born between, 600 pups born between Jimney Rock and Drake's Beach. That's the highest we've ever counted in that. That swell in that section, but it also was a mild winter in January, February, if you remember. Right. The storms are a big part of that. So one thing that's been on my mind is, and we were talking up, well, you know, sea level rise is part of this in terms of where they might move to as sea level comes up and storms continue to come. But, um, you know, for the pinnipeds, we have harbor seals, California sea lions, 
Occasionally, northern fur seals around or Guadalupe fur seals have even come ashore. But elephant seals seem to be extremely resilient to a lot of the changes that have happened in the ocean, short term and long term. Whereas California sea lions, we really see them coming up on the beaches super skinny or super sick in response to um, algal blooms in the water. How are elephant seals so resilient to these changes in the ocean? Well, they feed in a completely different area than the California sea lions or even the harbor seals. Uh, They feed in the deepest ocean, far from shore, whereas the sea lions are feeding in the California current, which is driven by coastal upwelling and and the California current itself upwelling. And that's a distinct ecosystem that many marine mammals are dependent on. But elephant seals are disengaged from that. They don't rely on that ecosystem for their food. In fact, there was a study just done in the past few years, several studies, but one that identified that uh, lanternfish, which are really deep sea fish, and they have bioluminescence, Mm -hmm. are a big part of their diet. Um, And that's new information. Deep sea squid, ratfish, things that you would not want to put on your plate (laughs) are are what they're foraging in. And so that is a least affected area in the oceans right now. The California current is 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 affected because of those wind changes during El Nino events. Mm-hmm. But elephant seals, even in El Nino, in big El Nino years, elephant seals are affected, and that showed up in '98 when many fewer female elephant seals came back pregnant mm. during that. So they lost their fetus, or they reabsorbed their fetus, or didn't get pregnant that year. Uh, So even they are affected by El Nino years. I've uh, queried a a colleague of mine who's a scientist in Sonoma State, Dan Crocker. He's like one of the leading researchers for elephant seals in the world. He's tagged probably more elephant seals than any researcher. And I queried him how the blob, which you are familiar with, but for listeners, the blob is this big warm water mass in the Gulf of Alaska, how that might be affecting elephant seals, because that's a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it may have long-term effects for elephant seals, since many of the males feed up in that, that area. Uh, So I'm waiting to hear if he's done any analysis of that, because that's a new phenomenon that's just being studied. And from my understanding, the blob is setting up again this year in the North Pacific. It has set up several years since it was first identified, Mm -hmm. but then kind of dissipated. So we'll see if it carries through. It sets up over the winter. And what the blob is actually is there are fewer storms in, in the southeast Alaska. And consequently, there's less turnover of the ocean, okay. which would bring up that cold water from the depths. Mm-hmm. So instead of being turned over, you get this warm mass of water sitting on top of the ocean water, and then that that is brought south. Okay. And that's how we get it. So if you don't have a lot of storms in the Gulf of Alaska, you may develop this warm water mass called the blob, a very important scientific term. I know. It's so funny. I'm surprised we haven't had another, ner- you know, another term for it yet. <laughs> for folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I have Dr. Sarah Allen here talking with me, and we were talking about elephant seals and their resilience, so strong. And, you know, when you talk about the different habitat that they utilize, it just made me think... Um, In the last two years, we've had this opportunity to actually look at that environment um, with the National Marine Sanctuaries, with the Nautilus and the remotely operated vehicles. And 
there was one dive we did where we went through, it was right on the edge of the continental shelf where we went through a pretty deep layer of, I think they were hake. And it was just thick hake. And then as you get deeper and deeper, less and less fish. But that was a very significant zone that we went through. I'm pretty sure they were hake. California sea lions feed heavily on hake, by Mm -hmm. the way. Yeah. So they feed down there, too. They feed along the shelf edge Mm -hmm. or where hake are. Yeah. They feed where there's a high abundance of food. So they'll key in on on migrating salmon. They'll key on herring. It's whatever is super abundant at the time sea lions will follow. Very opportunistic. Yes. But what's different about elephant seals, they, they don't feed cooperatively. So they're not herding fish like sea lions and harbor seals are well known for herding fish together cooperatively. Elephant seals are not thought to do that. They are They may feed it in the same area on the same type of fish, and they may learn from each other. We don't know. We're just starting to scratch our understanding about that. But they are likely feeding on individual fish and less so schooling fish. However, this new study was showing that they were following the deep scattering layer, which is a layer of all sorts of marine organisms as it goes up and down. So that's keying in on on a mass of potential prey, a concentration. So that's a different. That's exciting. But, yes. Well, it was really cool down there. I was hoping that we'd see an elephant seal. No. <laughs> oh, but you know, there has been a video at a thousand feet of an elephant seal that was taken off of British Columbia. It was at a, a thousand feet, and it was a remote operating vehicle that was down there to measure hagfish. And so there was a yardstick next to this light that was down on the yardstick, and the researchers were were measuring the hagfish as they went by, and they were using community science volunteers to to look at these reams and reams of videos. And all of a sudden, the snout appeared in the edge of the camera and sucked the hagfish. Oh, my gosh. And so, one, it was an insight in that it was taking advantage of the light to to grab the prey, but also that it sucked and it didn't chew. And this is, you'll see that there are a lot of marine organisms that feed by sucking at depth. Wow. Think beaked whale that have no teeth. They suck. Sperm whales likely suck their prey in and not chew, even though they have teeth. So the teeth might be to grab something bigger since they can use multiple niches of sucking Mm -hmm. and biting. Wow. That is amazing. One thing about the resilience I wanted to get back to about is um, we've been watching the shoreline change at Point Reyes and how the elephant seals have shifted around because of that. And there might be big waves that carve out the sand and they'd have cobblestones and they may not want to use that. But there might be another slide in another area that creates a huge sandy beach, and they'll immediately, the mm. next year, take over that beach and start breeding there. So they're adapting to how the shoreline is changing. It's eroding, but new sand is being deposited, too. So there's this kind of give and take that you're seeing along the shoreline, the ever uh, current, the ever-present carving out, but then redeposition. So it's an interesting play back and forth that they're adapting to in that way. That's interesting. The pups can't swim at birth, though. So if you have these big storm events at a at a time when the pups are very small, say less than ten days, they are less able to survive. Okay. So elephant seals have. <clears throat> Quite a few different niches. They are responding to these change, the changing shoreline here in Point Reyes. And 
we're it's time will tell basically of what's going to happen in in these more public beaches and um we all just need to be more aware of what we're visiting i was at drake's beach on friday and there were a lot of people that were very close to elephant seals it made me very nervous and you know i was totally off work i was just with my family and very concerned so i hope people are really paying attention and and keeping a smart distance of over two car lengths away has been the recommended distance yes if they if you see them reacting to you you're too close Um, but a good rule of thumb is that it is about two car distances now a male sound asleep may not respond to you uh, but it's always safe to keep that distance. Females with pups are highly aggressive and will charge you. Mm. There, it's too early for pups at this point, right? Or no, there was one pup no. that was born already, No, right? there are 49 pups right now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's it's taking off now. The first pup was just before Christmas, and now they're 29. Wow. Well, let's get it. We have some audio. Let's listen to some elephant seal sounds and talk a little bit about what we're hearing. These are females, right? Some bugling in the back? Oh, you you can't hear them. (laughs) Let me... Bugling would be males. Yes, bugling will be males. I'm going to keep these sounds on. I'm going to get you some headphones. All right, so you can hear them now, too. Now I can hear them. That's a whole colony sound. You hear the squealing of the pups. They sound like a little chimpanzee. And the females that are kind of growling, kind of a little popping noise. And then the males, which are trumpeting. And that's what they use that nose as a resonating chamber for their vocalizations. It sounds like a single-stroke engine. Yeah. So one thing... That bellowing is a female. The bellowing. The bellowing would be a female. And then they warble. Females will warble at their pups and bellow at males. (laughs) That little, that's a female talking to her pup. And there's a lot of physical contact between the females and the pups. They stay with each other. The female stays with the pup for 30 days, on average 33 days. So unless they're separated because of storms or males or fighting, because females fight too, uh, they they stay closely together and the pup is nursing or sleeping. <laughs> we'll come back to some of these in a little bit. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Well, the males, there have been a lot of research on the males and their vocalizations because it's so different. And that nose, when they're on shore, is very long and pendulous. But when they're at sea, it it becomes wedge-shaped. Otherwise, it would hinder their ability to swim through the water. But when they're on shore, they will trumpet with it. So I think this is some trumpeting. Mm -hmm. See why people call it a single-stroke engine. Yeah. And it's 
The studies done by researchers Carolyn Case from UC Santa Cruz has been looking at the vocalization, and she has she's done some really exciting things. She's come up here to Point Reyes and vo- and recorded the vocalizations of males too. Those males that have deeper voices and can hold and trumpet longer tend to be the alpha males, and that's very similar to other large mammals. It's a measure of fitness, that if you can hold your breath a long time, that means you can dive deep and really get a lot of food. So you're very fit. You're very fit. And Males will often practice trumpeting against hard surfaces like rock faces or even under the dock at at the lifeboat station. They'll go under there and it makes them sound really big. But the other research that she showed is that males learn other male voices. So they're actually responding more, not necessarily to the the, uh, depth of the voice, but they're responding to knowing that male before and memorizing his voice. And that's unique because she took vocalizations from alpha males down in Ana Nuevo and brought them up to Point Reyes and the animals, the alpha males at Point Reyes ignored them. Interesting. So they're, they've learned that it gives the impression that they've learned and there is a dialect. Uh, but then she was comparing vocalizations of animals recorded 40 years ago to today and she found that the vocalizations are more complex and more individual. So there's a separation. Dialect is less important. It's a very, it's a whole new science where she's looking at this. It's very exciting. That is amazing. I know there's a lot of work <clears throat> trying to understand whale vocalizations and dolphin echolocation sounds um, that they put out. But I hadn't heard about elephant seal vocalization research. That's amazing. What I think is to come is this vocalization underwater because many animals use vocalizations underwater that we're just learning about. Uh, Sea lions are well known for barking underwater, Mm -hmm. but elephant seals must be vocalizing. They they blow bubbles a lot underwater, so they may be vocalizing in other ways underwater to communicate. Amazing. That is so fascinating. So, I, you know, in terms of the behavior that we see on the beach, so right now at Drake's Beach, there are a couple of big males, and there's been some fighting and some moving around. You can just sit there and watch, and you can pretty much tell what's happening. But it seems like most of the females so far are a bit further down the beach. So is this just sort of, sort of setting up of a harem of people, or elephant seals kind of dominating and communicating to each other about who's the best, who's going to be mm-hmm. able to move in? Mm-hmm. And is that happen on the outskirts or does that happen in the middle of the colony too? I've heard of um, Loser's Beach where the the offcasts have to end up and then they duke it out a little bit. Well, there are lots of strategies that have been teased out by watching how these colonies form. And even in the main colonies where there have been concentrations for decades, you'll find a larger male arriving maybe early and just defending his place on the beach They're not defending a territory like you see for other mammals and birds. They're defending their place next to where the females are. So you may see an alpha-type male early on, but remember, they're fasting the whole time that they're there, and it can be up to three months. So there's a, you know, there's a, a... a tipping point, do you come too early and you lose out at the end, or do you come a little later and displace who might be there? Um, that's one strategy. There is a strategy by some males that hang out 
in South Beach, all along South Beach, you see these enormous males. They sh- rightfully, you'd think they would be alpha males, but they're just resting on South Beach. I wouldn't call them losers. They're big males. But when the peak of estrus occurs, when most of the females are receptive to breeding, which is the second, first, second week of February, those males at South Beach come around and flood the beaches. And an alpha male can't fend off all those males. So that's mm. a different strategy. And we we discovered that about 20 years ago at Point Reyes where there was on South Beach these enormous males and they just waited, bided their time. They're not waste, wasting their energy with big fights. They're fighting a little amongst themselves, but not much. And then a third strategy is these younger males that they're about the size of a female and they sneak into the side of the larger harems and try to mate with females. Now, usually a female is going to fend off because she doesn't want to be bothered by this younger male. And the alpha male will intervene or or a beta male will intervene. But sometimes they're successful. Amazing. How so? Here at Point Reyes, you have been you are a huge part of all this monitoring, but you can't possibly do all this by yourself. Who else is involved with monitoring elephant seals out here in Point Reyes? Well, volunteers are the backbone of all of this mm-hmm. program. For for many of the the monitoring programs at, in national parks, generally in sanctuaries, uh, that volunteers are the backbone, and they're volunteers from the local communities and from the East Bay and the South Bay and San Francisco. Uh, we draw from a whole range of of people who have an interest. Uh, initially, when we started monitoring in the 80s, we have volunteers from Ananuevo who already came trained. I mean, they already had studied down there and they were helping us up here. Uh, but right now, for example, we have a person from Bolinas, Marjorie Cox, who is incredible. She worked on the Fairlawns with Point Reyes, Birdab's Point Blue Conservation mm-hmm. Science uh, for a season. So she came experienced. And we hired her last year as an intern to work for the season, and now she's just, she's invaluable. She's terrific. She's very competent. She's smart. She's fun, and she uh, comes. She surveys three to four days a week with us. So our surveys are counting the seals, but we also go back and we read what are called flipper tags. They're tags that we attach to the rear flippers or other researchers attach to the rear flippers, and we collect that data and share it with all the other colonies. So we have several layers of studying that's going on. And then there, there are a couple other people from Bolinas. There are people locally in um, Inverness, uh, John Longstreth is going to help me on Thursday survey, and uh, Sue Vanderwall is another one. So many people from the local community um, help because they have an interest, and luckily they have some time. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. But I want to just reemphasize: this is the back. They are the backbone. They're experienced. And we train them, and they they come back. So there's a high retention. I think Sue Vanderwall has been volunteering for 20 years. I mean, that's incredible commitment. Yeah. Uh, but to her and to many of us, now I'm volunteering. The, to us, it's a seasonal rite of passage in the winter that the elephant seals are back. We're out there. It's beautiful in between the storms, and it's a gift to be out here. I, it's a privilege to have this opportunity. Honestly, this the national seashore and the the beauty and the cycles that we have here. I just I think about it every year. Like God, this is amazing. We have these amazing mammals on our beaches that. 
we get to watch and enjoy and teach others about. And, you know, not every part of all parts of the planet have such incredible biodiversity. And I just remember every year how incredible it is. And I really enjoyed sharing with my son last week. We were out there and well, I was telling a friend of mine um, over the weekend, go to Drake's Beach. She has five years, no, seven twin seven-year-olds. I said, go to Drake's Beach. You're like 20 feet away from these big males. What seven-year-old ever has that opportunity to see a wild animal and then to imagine where it's been, where it goes, how deep it dives, what it sees at that depth? And it takes you out of your yourself to think of what they do. They're just an amazing, extreme example of, of mammal existence. So... Um, elephant seals have come back from this brink of extinction. We, you know, they are near, hunted to near extinction and have rebounded. What are some of the other threats that they face now as we have changing climate and marine debris and overfishing? What are some of the most direct threats to elephant seals? They seem to be doing great. They are. Their population's increasing at about 3 three to 5% per year. In some colonies, it's I think down in San Simeon, that population's increasing higher, like 8%. So they, they're they incredibly resilient, but we don't know how much. Genetically, there's um, some concern uh, about the, the protein, their monoprotein um, alleles. But recent research has shown that there's actually a lot more genetic diversity than initially thought, and that... Uh, the northern colonies, which are include Ananuevo and San, Simi, San Simeon and Point Reyes, those colonies are statistically um, different from San Miguel Island. But whether that's biologically different is not known. But there is some difference between those those two. Uh, groups, so there may be these subpopulations, but there. So there's that one concern because they went through not just one but two genetic bottlenecks. The first genetic bottleneck was from hunting, because of their blubber yielded uh, cooking and heating oil, and the second bottleneck was because scientists from the Smithsonian killed the little colony that they found on San Mag- on um, Guadalupe Island. So they hunted those ones that were their breeding. Luckily, most elephant seals are at sea, and few are concentrated on shore at any one time, so they didn't kill all of them. But you can go to Cal Academy, and you can see the bones of elephant seals collected at Guadalupe Island in the late 1800s. Wow, that's cool. But back to your thing about threats. So there's that potential genetic one because of the bottlenecks. Uh, sea level rise, they, it depends on the habitat and where there are. If it's an island, the Fairlawn Islands, for example, was an important colony. During storms, the sand was washed away, carved out. They hardly used the Fairlawns anymore. There are about 100 pups born there every year. So that is a potential. Uh, the food and where they feed, so there is evidence that El Nino's warm water events can affect even their prey at the deep, deep water. Hmm. So that is of concern. Plastics occur in on their necks. With they swim through the garbage patch. That's one of the areas where they feed in the the Pacific Gyre. But we don't know to what extent 
animals are affected by that. It seems to be a small percentage that come on shore with plastic wrapping around their neck. But we don't know about the plastic in their gut. Mm-hmm. And that would require more intensive study. So how that might be affecting them. Uh, just to let listeners know, this is KWMR Point Reyes Station, and you're listening to Ocean Currents here with Sarah Allen. Um, as my guest, and this is Jennifer Stock, we're going to take a quick short break. I'm going to give you some more elephant seal sounds to listen to while we just take a quick break and come back in just a moment. Listening to some elephant seal sounds that actually were re- were recorded in Año Nuevo by an acoustician, Jay Salter. This is a CD he lent me that um, he took some very high resolution audio recordings to share. So thank you, Jay Salter, for sharing those sounds of all the elephant seals to really get you immersed in that colony. Uh, you're tuned here to Ocean Currents. I have Dr. Sarah Allen in the studio with me, and we're talking about elephant seals and all some of the other marine ecosystem uh, wonders that we have around the waters at Point Reyes National Seashore. And we we're just talking about recovery and how and some of the other threats that they face. And one of the questions I was wondering, since elephant seals have made this amazing recovery, we have so many other mammals and species that have are down in numbers. Are there lessons learned from the the elephant seal recovery that could be applied to other species in recovering those populations? When the elephant seals were first discovered, it was on Guadalupe Island off of Baja, California. And there, there were several other pinniped species. In fact, the Mexican government stepped in right away and established it as a pinniped reserve. And because of that, those other species also have rebounded. And to me, it's emblematic of you protect an area and they will come back. 
And we have seen that time again in many examples. And I just think of the Giacomini wetland restoration and all the species that have returned or benefited from that restoration effort to Tomales Bay. And the elephant seals are, yet again, an example of that. And Drake Sestero as Drake well. And Drake yes. If you, the, the newest elephant seal colony is now on the Lost Coast in Northern California, and that's fast-growing little colony. It's about an hour hike along that trail along the Lost Coast on BLM lands. And there again, a protected area where the colony could get established. And that example of Drake's Beach parking lot being taken over when... It was shut down. That's a window on how little colonies get established. So if you want a colony to get established, make sure that you have some protections there, whatever they are. You protect their breeding sites because they ha- as a pinniped, they have to come on land to breed. And the same thing for Guadalupe fur seals. Their population's also recovering, and they were discovered on Guadalupe Island uh, by um, a researcher in the 50s, he thought they were extinct, and he found them in caves. So here, <laughs> here is a species that had a little niche in the caves in Guadalupe Island, and that's how they survived from hunting and from temperature down there. Amazing. So marine protected areas in particular now in California are hugely important, especially with our better understanding of changes in climate. These little protected areas, and I say little because they only represent like 18% of the state waters, mm-hmm. um, they are refugia for species that w- that can be protected with changes. And that refugia might be because that's where there's kelp or there's freshwater flow in there or they're protected breeding colonies. But for whatever reason, those marine protected areas are exceptional and will help species transition to these different conditions. Mm-hmm. And that's what climate change is. It's a different condition. Mm-hmm. And some animals have been highly adaptive in the past to changing conditions, and we may see that again. I'll give you one example that always shocked me was we know that gray whales were hunted in the Atlantic. There was a gray whale population in the Atlantic Ocean, and they were extinct by the, the 12th century. Well, in the past 20 years, gray whales have been identified in the Atlantic Ocean. The only way they got there is through the Arctic waters. So with global warming, these waters are opening up, opening up different habitats for gray whales. They may benefit, they may not. But they feed differently from, say, humpback whales or blue whales, which were really tied to the California current. Gray whales are mud suckers. They eat the organisms that are in the mud. Mm-hmm. Not they'll they'll eat krill. They'll eat things that are in the water column, but they really are mud suckers. So are they better adapted? We don't know. Um, in, last year there was concern because there was a major die off of of gray whales. Well, and to put it in perspective, though, that last year was also the highest count ever made of gray whales twenty five thousand since they were hunted. There is some thought that it, it may be higher than prehistoric levels. Wow. So. If you have some die-off proportionately, it wasn't very high in 
into what that population was. And Sue Moore, who studies gray whales, has said, let's just put this in context. And yes, there was less food for them. But there are some gray whales that don't migrate up north. They feed, they stay year round Mm -hmm. off of the Oregon coast. And they've they found food in that that zone that sustains them year round. We have a few around here as well. Has it always been that way, where we've no. always had some residents, or the fairly low, recent phenomena that they've stayed? I'd say it's recent in that we've seen it and documented it in the past twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were feeding at the mouth of Tomales Bay twenty years ago. I think there were eleven seen at one time, and I've seen them myself feeding and. They've been feeding in Tomales Bay and around the Fairlands. There may be ones. They're thought to be juveniles, but now they're actually adults that are doing it. So why go all the way to Alaska, which is energetically kind of costly, unless you want to go on a trip um, to see some different locale when you can find the food you need nearby? Mm-hmm. So here's a, a this might be a, a real jump off, but you know Drake's Beach has been such an interesting area with. A lot of phenomena showing up at the beaches and getting people interested in what's happening in the ocean. And um, this uh, year, about a month ago, we had fat innkeeper worms wash up mm-hmm. in abundance. Is that a potential food source of gray whales because they live in the mud and the like subsurface? They might. When yes. they sift through? Yes. Um, I, ha- I don't remember sp- the specifics of the types of organisms, but a lot of polychaete worms, mm-hmm. um, amphipods, have been identified, but I don't know why it wouldn't be innkeeper worms. The gulls certainly went after them. They were huge flies. I happened to be there the- during that time, not on the beach, but I was looking at them with a spotting scope, and it was just hundreds of That's western amazing. gulls. Uh, most no- not just western gulls, but hundreds of gulls. But I didn't see any other birds feeding there, which I found interesting. So it was a concentration of gulls. Well, it's just I just thought of that because uh, that phenomena happened. It was so unique. And they live in the soft sediment right. and wondered if that was a potential something that gray whales would suck up when they're, you know, skipping along the bottom. Well, I've seen them feeding in Drake's Bay intensively with mud pouring out of their mouths. And your colleague, Dan uh, Howard, Mm -hmm. when he was diving in Drake's Bay, uh, said it's carpeted in mycid shrimp. And I know that they like mycid shrimp, and it may be that they're feeding on the shrimp both in the mud and when they they swarm above the mud. One time I was watching off of Point Race Headlands a gray whale feeding and diving continuously in one place. Obviously, it was feeding on something, but it was feeding with about 200 eared grebes. So they were all feeding on the same thing as they kept diving together. And I'm I'm not sure whether the grebes were keen into the food or into the gray whale and disturbing the, the mud or sand. Wow, cool. So now that you're retired, you're going to have more time to be making all these amazing observations about what's happening in the ocean. I'm assuming you'll be maybe spending time on the coast and watching and to add to your incredible knowledge of what's going on in the ocean. Well, things change, don't they, Jenny? <laughs> I, I love being at sea, and so I'm hoping for more opportunity to be on the water. Um, but I will, I will forever be tied to this coastline. I grew up here, and it's in my... My soul, and I love to get that next generation up and going. So working with people like Marjorie and other uh, young people and students 
to get them interested uh, in marine life because there's so much. We're just scratching the surface. There is so much, and it seems magical sometimes what you see and hear and learn about, um, and and the potential for scientific discovery is ex- extraordinary. We don't necessarily need to go to the moon to find incredible discoveries, as you well know, in the deep sea, and these are these are the vehicles to that deep sea. Elephant seals are used by scientists to understand the deep sea because they come back to the same place on shore and they can retrieve these incredible gizmos that they attach to They're them. Amazing. So we talked a little bit about gray whales, which are also starting to move south. Their, start, their numbers are starting to show up a little bit. Um, they saw about nine this weekend moving south. Um, but we were also talking about orcas and orcas come through occasionally. And which orcas, there's a couple different pods of orcas. So which pod of orcas are we talking about that spend time off our coast right now? Actually, there are three different types of orcas. They're called ecotypes, and they may become different species. Uh, Genetically, they're actually different, but they feed on different things. And the one that people are probably most familiar with are the ones in San Juan Islands that feed on salmon because there's a lot known about those pods mm-hmm. and they're actually lettered pods J L K and I can't remember the other ones but th- those pods that population is shrinking uh, the oldest they've documented the oldest female it's a matrilineal society was over a hundred years old it just uh, they feel that die she died recently and they go through. Um, they go through menopause. It's documented of a female of another mammal actually going through hmm. uh, menopause. But anyway, that's one group. Their population declining because they're dependent on salmon and fish. They actually come down to Monterey Bay and have been documented because individuals have been identified. They've seen the individuals down in Monterey Bay, and they have been seen down in Drake's Bay. So... Um, Drake's Bay is a concentration area for a lot of fish, and some salmon scientists think that it, they're entrained in there, meaning they're kind of pool in there before they may go into San Francisco Bay to spawn. Mm-hmm. It might be a concentration area for them. So that's one group, one ecotype, and they're called the southern resident. And okay. then there's the transient ecotype. They're the ones that eat mammals. And those are the ones that are seen in Monterey Bay, but they're seen all the way up into Alaska. And they're very, they're transient. That's why they're called transients. They move up and down the coast. That population is actually increasing. And the thought is that it's increasing because they're feeding on gray whales and the gray whale population is rebounding. Mm -hmm. Uh, They try and feed on other mammals, but they're concentrating on gray whales. So um, I am speculating that as the elephant seal colonies get larger, more concentrated, that they will switch prey and also feed on elephant seals Hmm. because they have been documented to feed on elephant seals in other parts. Even in the state of Washington, they've been documented uh, to feed on elephant seals. So those little plump wieners are just floating along on the shoreline, easy pickings for uh, an orca. And in fact, I talked to the researchers down in San Simeon, and they said they've seen orcas around that colony. 
So perhaps in the next five to ten years, we might see more orcas. Interesting. Yes. That, so the third type of, of orca is called this um, – it's offshore, and that's because it occurs mostly offshore. We know less about that group, but they do feed on sharks, and primarily sharks, but not necessarily exclusively on sharks. And one of the key indicators of their feeding on sharks is their teeth are all worn down because shark skin is like sandpaper, so Mm -hmm. it just wears down. And I was uh, lucky to help collect one for Cal Academy of Sciences that washed ashore at Tomales Point a few years ago. In fact, Joe Sewell um, discovered it from Point Race when he was out hiking, and he um, reported it. Cal Academy went down. The park went down. We collected the whole skeleton because it, there was n- never a whole skeleton collected of this ecotype before, and it's hanging in Cal Academy of Sciences right now. Oh, that's yeah, the, that's the skeleton. Cool. And it was assembled. There's a whole video on the assembly of it that Mo Flannery and others. Mo was the uh, director of the mammals and birds section there. It was really fun to see that assembly. And they found that this was a young male that had been documented, British Columbia even, um, but it had an injury to its rib cage that had been re-injured, and there was some thought that it was being beaten up by another orca because it was a young male, and they tend to be aggressive to each other. Wow, fascinating! There's That's so speculation. Many, but there's it's, so much social structure to mammals that we just don't know yet. No. And we see some things that we can relate to as humans but it's it's interesting how much we really we really don't know. Well they have so much culture and it's different amongst those three different ecotypes. They have a different language. Uh, there's so much. We're just scratching the surface and all of this acoustic work I think is fascinating because this is where we're drilling down to understand better and with large data sets you can analyze better. So the sanctuary and Other organizations, like the Park Service, are putting these nodes in all over over the United States where they're paired sanctuaries and national parks, national seashores, et cetera, underwater nodes for collecting baseline sound data. You probably know about this. Well, I know the one offshore. Do we have one near shore? No. There's one one in National Park in Samoa. There's going to be one up in Olympic National Park. I think there's one down in the Channel Islands. There's There's one in Glacier Bay. In Glacier Bay, but that's been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. In fact, they can identify individual boats by the pitch of the prop spin. I know the one that we have out at Cordell is right on the border of Excuse me, the Cordell Bank and Greater Farallones National Marine Sanctuaries, and I believe it's really focusing on low-frequency noises. It's a hydrophone out there Mm -hmm. that they collected uh, two years ago and put a new one out, and I think they're going to be bringing it in, and it's being analyzed now, something I have yet to catch up on in terms of the findings of that. But it'll it'll be interesting to see, especially if we can get a a one near closer to shore as well. Um, That's what we were arguing for, but they they wanted to start with these distant locations first just to get some baseline and then compare to where you might have areas of heavy traffic. It's a whole field of study. Yeah, we'll have to have an interview about this um, in the coming months. There's so many things to catch up on. Well, we're just, we have just a couple minutes left, and uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or share with us um, before we close out our show today? Well, I... I, for those who might be listening, I encourage you 
could go out there now, but go more than once because the season extends for three months and it has a different feel about it from the beginning to the end. Mm. And in the beginning, the males are coming in and they're just full of vim and vigor and they're big. They're big. They're massive. They're in their peak condition. The females are also newly um, arrived and they're pregnant and they're giving birth. So you can see births, which is really exciting to see a birth of, of a marine mammal. And it's not as simple as you would think, or perhaps you don't think it's simple, but it it's very exciting to see a birth and it's not uncommon to see them, especially in the couple first three weeks of January. You spend a couple hours out there, you could see a birth. And then the middle season, everything is chaotic and males are going <laughs> in and out. And there's a lot of action. If you like to watch animal behavior, it's not a quiet little colony. It's full of action during storms versus calm, warm days. It's very different. And if it's a hot day, what we've discovered at Point Reyes is the females will actually take their water, their pups to the edge of the water to cool them off. And this has not been seen before, Hmm. uh, where they take their pups swimming. And elephant seal pups are not known to swim, but they're actually swimming at that time when it gets really warm. But in a storm, it's dramatic to see how the waves uh, move the seals around, how they respond and protect their pups. And then finally, at the end of the season, it's chaos with males everywhere and females leaving and pups squealing. It's just a it's amazing transformation of the colony over time. That's wonderful. And would Chimney Rock be the best place to likely see things in terms of births right now? I mean, Drake's Beach, obviously, as well, but is Drake, Chimney Rock? The Chimney Rock is probably the best place to see, but there was a pup born at the lifeboat station, and there are two more females there. So that might be another place to look. So walk down to the yes. lifeboat station. and Yeah, actually, that's a great place because you're, you're really safe behind that fence mm-hmm. there, and you can be really close to them and observe them. And I would just also recommend to folks to make sure to check the Point Reyes National Seashore website regarding uh, shuttle information. There's a winter shuttle running Saturdays and Sundays because the traffic is quite large in the weekend. Sarah, it's wonderful to spend an hour with you and, and hear all your knowledge. And I know you'll be very effective at whatever next step you take while you move on from your very... How many years did you work for the National Park Service? 26 years. 26 years. But I studied the elephant seals from when they first arrived here. And it's been fun to watch this this change over time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope you stay closely connected to the park and this population so we can continue to learn from everything we have learned in the past and, and as we move forward with well, what's going to happen. We're ready for that next generation to s- step up and be involved. If you have a passion about it, don't hesitate to reach out to Jenny or myself. That's right. And also um, the docent program, the, the National Seashore also has an incredible docent program with wonderful training. They've already trained for this year, but come on out and meet those docents and maybe you'd want to do it next year. Uh, great way to get a lot of great information about elephant seals and other marine life around the, the peninsula. I want to just say Happy New Year to everybody. I am really excited for coming back to Ocean Currents and KWMR this year and bringing more ocean interviews and and topics to you all. And I welcome your ideas. Oh, please feel free to reach out to me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. <laughs> ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month, 11 to 12. 
And you can go to cordellbank.noaa.gov for past episodes of Ocean Currents. And that Ocean podcast is in iTunes as well. Thank you for listening and enjoy the Ocean Bay or whatever body of water you can get into safely this time of year and all year. And this has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Dot gov.